Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Tony Hiss will join us to discuss rescuing the planet. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, rescuing the planet Earth may be a lot easier than one might think in protecting half the land. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Tony Hiss. Mr. Hiss is the author of 15 books, including the award winning The Experience of Place. He was a staff writer at The New Yorker for more than 30 years and a visiting scholar at New York University for 25 years and has lectured around the world. His latest release, Rescuing the Planet, Protecting Half the Land to Heal the Earth, is now available in paperback. And Mr. Hiss, thank you so much for joining us today to the Grok Science Show. Oh, Charles, thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, it is certainly our pleasure, certainly an important book. In terms of our planet, I'm curious why you decided to put this book together. Well, I guess the first thing that prompted me was just feeling the plight of the animals. We've reached a situation where something like a million species of plants and animals are threatened with extinction, uh, many within the next few decades. And this is sometimes called the other environmental crisis to distinguish it from the climate change crisis. But of course, really, they're all part of the same thing, which is what's happening to the planet, what's happening to the biosphere. And this is the one that got less attention for many years. Some papers showing that something like 12 times as much attention has been paid in scholarly papers and in the press to the climate crisis. But this is the year in which the biodiversity emergency seems to be finally coming into its own. Later this year, after two years of COVID-related delays, it looks like 197 countries will gather in Kunming, China, maybe in August or September, to endorse this idea as a global goal that we put aside at least 30% of the planet land and waters by the year 2030, which is a huge undertaking, but something that looks like we're getting a big buy-in to. How much of the land on Earth has been overtaken, and how much really do we need to get to in order to preserving almost half of that for animals? Well, that, those are the big underlying questions. Thank you, Charles. Something like 15% of the planet is protected in some form or other at this point. And that's 150 years after Yellowstone National Park, the first national park in the world, was set up 2 million acres or so. And at the time, it seemed like an incredible achievement. And in fact, national parks have often been called America's greatest idea. Well, I think we're being called on now to have even greater ideas. If it took us 150 years to get to 15%, and now we're being told we need to hit 30% within a decade, that's a huge acceleration. And why 30%? Well, sort of two scientific understandings that have come into being. One is that a whole series of field studies have showed that most species, if they can retain at least 50% of their original habitat, have a chance of surviving, if not thriving. It's that there's a range. Some maybe only need 30%. Some more sensitive ones need as much as 70%. But 
splitting the difference, 50% seems to be a, a decent rule of thumb. On the other hand, we have island biogeography studies which sort of extrapolate how many species can thrive in a given area of a given size. And from that, the consensus seems to be that if we only stay at 15% where we are now, sooner or later, only about 25% of all the millions of species with which we share the planet will have a chance of sticking around. Whereas if we bump that up first to 30 and seeing that as a first step towards the, the other slogan that's now come into being in addition to 30 by 30 is 50 by 50, which would mean going up to something like 50% by the year 2050, by mid-century. That if we do that, we can then have a good chance of protecting up to 90% of all the species around us. 90% is not 100%, so there is some loss there, but it is by and large everything. And it's not just to keep it going, to keep life alive, but every day we seem to have more a deeper understanding of the fact that its being there is what contributes to the healthiness of our being here. This goal of actually reaching 50 by 50, it, it is a doable goal. Doable goal. And the revelation to me when I started to look around was a goal that's actually already being tackled with great enthusiasm, with great success. I had a chance to travel all over North America, and I was amazed at the different kinds of projects underway the success they're beginning to have, and also the fact that not necessarily all these people knew about each other, but they were all working on this. And that what they had in common was that they'd all opened their mind to this larger context, that the need was there to get beyond the kinds of things we've been doing to make trouble and to begin to heal. So I met up with an amazing man in northwest Florida, up in the panhandle of Florida, who thought of himself as a good old boy who had grown up there and struck it rich after initially making money just by playing poker, knew nothing about environmental stuff. One day was caught in a traffic jam on I-4 in Florida and frustrated, looked around and saw a billboard that said Black Bear Seminar at a local high school, thought anything's better than this, peeled off, went inside, said there were a couple of drunk sleeping it off in a big empty auditorium, a couple of bemused Canadian tourists who were lost looking for some day-old donuts, and up on the stage, two remarkable women who were talking about the plight of the Florida black bear and how its habitat had been eaten away. He was thunderstruck and on the spot said, how come I never knew about this? Next day, sent them a check so they could keep going for two years. They were a little taken aback and said, what are you looking for? He said, what I'm looking for is a list of the 100 most important environmental books so I can get caught up to speed. Took a year, read them, then bought up 51,000 acres of local played out peanut farms, began replanting longleaf pine seedlings. This was the great ecosystem of that part of the world and the native habitat for the black bears down there. I caught up with him 13 years later. Place still looked pretty scruffy. He said, yeah, but this is year 13 of a 300-year project. Keep coming back. M.C. Davis is now no longer with us, but he left an endowment to make sure that his forest will continue to thrive for the next 300 years. Absolutely amazing. And, and your book is really filled with stories like that. As, as you point out, you really had a chance to travel around, meet with a number of these individuals who are making a difference in your investigation. What was the most surprising thing that you came across? Maybe the most surprising of all was a sort of counterpart to M.C. Davis got to meet in northern Mexico. An artist, a New York City-based artist named Valere Clark, bought up, in this case, played out cattle ranches both on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border, Arizona and northern Mexico. 
bone dry places. And she wondered what could be done about this. And there was just one place where there was sort of a little puddle of water. And she asked the people who were working on the ranch if they could just put up a few stones in place, see if they could capture that water. Well, it turned out her workers came from a southern part of Mexico where the tradition was incredible stoneworking without any mortar. Trincheras, they were called the moats they built. They were the trincheristas. They began building these walls and it suddenly intermittent rain was being captured instead of being sluiced away down canyons. She's now built with their help mile after mile of these dams across rock dry streams. And when the rains come, they get captured and now there are incredible greenery throughout her lands. So she seems to have solved that problem. Again, just because she didn't like the looks of the place when she got there and thought, what can I do about it? Uh, all I've got is rocks. Well, it turns out rocks was all she needed. You know, in reading the book, one is struck by a different view than you oftentimes get in these types of books is, is really one of optimism, that this is really something that we can turn around and we're always seeing evidence of these sorts of interventions helping. Yes, I think we do have a, an excellent chance of actually staving off this sixth mass extinction crisis, as it's called sometimes, meaning the five previous crises, the most recent one was the one that did in the dinosaurs 66 million years ago. Also, another thing that was wonderful to find out about, up north in the Canadian boreal forest, this vast and still almost intact pine forest up on the north of the continent, something like 3,700 miles long, 1,000 miles from top to bottom. Up there, the people who lived there for 10,000 years or more, the native inhabitants, the First Nations as they're called up in Canada, have a clear understanding of how that landscape works and what it needs to thrive. And the Canadian government, although have their own terrible history of mistreating the First Nations, just as we do down here, never kicked them off the land. So they're still there and in place. And now the Canadian government has turned to them and said, we want you to help us create a whole second national park system in which you will be the leaders, you will be the rangers, you will be the caretakers, you will be the moccasins and mucklucks on the ground. And springing into being is this second system of parks called indigenous protected areas or indigenous protected and conserved areas. The largest one of which that's about to be promulgated is one of 22 million acres. So that's something like 10 times the size of Yellowstone. And it surrounds Great Bear Lake, which is this extraordinary lake. Part of it's above the Arctic Circle. I got a chance to get up there it feels so unchanged, and the people there are so caring. The lake is still pellucid. You can still look down and see the bottom, and you look down 50, 60 feet, and you see what look like trunks of trees lying on the bottom. Well, it turns out they're not trees at all. They're these giant freshwater fish who still live there, which can live to be 60, 70 years of age. So it's like returning to another time. Thinking down here, as we do in an east to west perspective, we think the frontier is gone, it disappeared 100 years ago. Well, if we think south to north, that frontier is still very there and now is in the active stage of being protected for the benefit of the whole continent. As you point out in your book, it requires this global or planetary perspective to make these preservations. Well, yes, I'm glad you brought that up because the whole point or one of the whole points of national parks, not just to give us a place to go to, but to give species a place, was that this would solve that problem. But then it turned out that as early as 1988, we, there was a landmark paper by evolutionary conservation biologist William Newmark 
showing that even the biggest national parks in the West were losing species, leaking species. They weren't doing the job they'd been set up to do of protecting the species, and that's because species knew nothing about the boundaries or borders of these parks. They came and went as they pleased and as they needed to. And also, if the parks began getting surrounded by development, they couldn't get back in if they did leave. So we had to start thinking at a different scale and in a different context. And very fortunately, long before that came such an obvious problem, people had started thinking, at least some people, with this planetary outlook. Perhaps the most notable of them was Benton Mackay, revered as the father of the Appalachian Trail. In the summer of 1900, we're talking 122 years ago, he just got out of college. He and his best friend decided to celebrate by climbing through the Green Mountains of Vermont. There were no trails in those days. They bushwhacked their way up to the top of Stratton Mountain in southern Vermont, shinning up the tallest trees they could find. And while swaying there, Mackay had this sense that he was part of an enormous landscape that stretched all along the, the length of the Appalachian Mountains from the Maine up to the north of him, all the way down to Georgia in the south of him. And he thought, how can we maintain this sense? And he was overcome by what he many years later called a, a planetary feeling. Well, it took him another 20 years to write the essay in which he proposed the Appalachian Trail. And that caught their imagination of so many people that within 12 years, the trail itself had come into being. Almost all of it, the work of volunteers, not anything that was paid for by U.S. government dollars, 2,190 miles long. He saw this as the backbone of a larger realm, as he called it, the whole Appalachian landscape and countryside. So there's that thinking at that scale has been around, fortunately, and I think that's what imbues so many of these people who are doing so much good work now and why there's good reason for optimism, because we are beginning to use our minds in a different way to encompass the scope of the problem and the scope of the solutions that are possible. There were other early pioneers, most famous landscape architect of the early 20th century, a man named Warren Manning. His business dried up during World War I. The beer barons never didn't want any more palatial estates landscaped. So he put his whole staff to work on creating what he called the National Plan, a vision for the future of America. And he proposed protecting at least 30% of the country. Way back then, then a pioneering ecologist named Shelford in the 20s and 30s began thinking about how do we protect at least some of every ecosystem to keep it going and came up with the idea that later became famous as a whole international program of protected areas in terms of being a core area at the beginning, at the middle, which would be pretty much sacrosanct protected area surrounded by a buffer zone where there would be human uses and natural uses. Then a wonderful conservation biologist named Reed Noss came into his head that you could sort of unwind these buffer areas. They didn't have to just surround the core areas. They, they themselves could be long connectors from one core area to the next. And with that, he came up with an idea of a whole corridor and protected area program snaking through the state of Florida. That then inspired Contadian version of Benton Mackay, who in the 1990s had a vision of the whole Rockies from Yellowstone up to the top of the Yukon as a single place, Yellowstone to Yukon, he called it. That's now come into being as a, a program and a project that's attracted attention up and down the West. They've protected something like 20% of that area already. So there's a lot going on and a lot of really good stuff going on and a lot of really hopeful stuff going on. 
it certainly gives one a lot of hope. I think for those people listening, if they want to help be involved in some way, what advice would you have for them in terms of helping to protect half the land? On I'm glad you brought that up, Charles, because that is the question, and it's an excellent question. It's the question I find I most often get asked, which is, what could I do? And the wonderful thing is there's something everyone can do, because I was talking to Reed Noss the other day, and he said, well, if we do protect something like 30% of the planet, it's only going to stay healthy if it's supported by what happens in the other 70%, which really, really means that every acre counts, no matter where we are, center city, suburb, out in the countryside. So among bird watchers, there's this phrase, spark bird, which refers to that bird which somehow caught their attention at some point in their life and showed its amazingness to them. And thereafter, they were hooked. They could not think of living without staying in touch with that bird somehow, looking at it, helping it, whatever they could do, the spark bird. Well, it doesn't have to be a bird. Whatever captures your attention about wherever you are, chances are I found, and that's sort of how the book developed, that if something occurred to me, it must have occurred to plenty of other people smarter than me. So you can just take whatever catches your mind, start to Google it and see who else in your area is working on it. It could be in, in center cities, for instance, there's something called pollinator projects. The idea that even a city street that has street trees in it, if the, the little bits of ground at the foot of feet of the trees are planted with wildflowers that attract butterflies or pollinating bees, they will move from one tree to the next. And you can set up a whole network of pollinator pathways just in the middle of a city or in the suburb. There's so much that can be done that people can get involved with. And of course, it's a nice, nourishing, nurturing feeling to do something for the other species. Well, we are running slightly out of time. I'm just curious if you have any final words regarding your book, Rescuing the Planet. Well, I hope you'll have a chance to look at it because I try to pull together not only the terrific things that are happening now, but the fact that we are drawing on this century-old tradition of people getting involved with the rest of the, the life on the planet if our slogan can be, let's keep life alive, we've got a great chance of doing it. And also, if in addition to reading the book, there's any group that would like to hear more from me, I'd be so pleased to come and talk to your group virtually or however. Stay in touch and see what can be done. And we were just talking with Mr. Tony Hiss, his book, Rescuing the Planet, Protecting Half the Land to Heal the Earth. Mr. Hiss, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you, Charles. Thank you so much. This is something we can all grok together. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs>